important is that the operation and the management of that grid is controlled and regulated by the regulatory authority that supports uh, that grid. Meet Sonia Tuhig. Perhaps you've come across her in Brussels, making sure transmission system operators are working together seamlessly. This is Net Zero, a podcast by the Florence School of Regulation about the energy transition and climate change. I am Joana Freitas, and in this series, I'm inviting myself into the minds of some truly insightful people with very different perspectives. Today, we are joined by Sonia Tuhig, Director of Operations of ENSOE, to discuss the role of the ownership of grids in the energy transition in Europe. Sonia, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joana. So the ownership of European grid operators has been under discussion lately. For example, in the UK, the Labour Party announced a plan to take national grid into public ownership if it were to be elected government. How do you respond to the argument that the state should own critical infrastructure, like transmission and distribution grids, to better deliver the energy transition and preserve security of supply? It's an interesting question. Um, I would look at it in different ways. The first is that transmission and distribution are natural monopolies. So there will only ever be one operator. And the answer could be that that operator is owned by a private enterprise or a public or state enterprise. What is really important is that the operation and the management of that grid is controlled and regulated by the regulatory authority that supports uh, that grid. So it can work either way. It can work in a very positive way for, for both private and public enterprise. What is really important is the management of the grid, the regulation of the grid, all serving the interests of the citizens of the country involved. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, we've also had, uh, for example, in the Netherlands, a plan to privatize or sell off part uh, stake in Tenet as the company needs more equity to invest in grid upgrades. As the energy transition will lead to increased investments in grids, or at least that's the expectation now, do you believe that raising capital from private investors might be the case for other grid operators? So exactly that. You know, if there is a need to invest more broadly in the grid and that the interest in investment comes from outside the public sector and into private sector, there is really no reason to consider that that is not the the right way forward. What is really important, of course, is that the investors in the grid are aligned fully with the use of the grid and the purpose of the grid for what it's there for. So the companies that are being invested into, their articles of association, their their reason for existing, should be aligned with the needs of the citizens for which that grid is built for. And therefore, it's just important then that those investors are fully aligned with what they're now becoming part of. I think that with the exception of of Portugal and the UK, all electricity network operators in Europe are primarily state-owned or state-controlled. You've said before that as long as the regulation and the governance is right, that the ownership is not an obstacle to a good public service. But what do you think could be the case for a fully private grid operator? 
A fully private grid operator would again be uh, would then be uh, very uh, sort of supportive as long as the governance and the governing board of that uh, company were fully aligned with its requirements under law, um, and that the regulator who regulates the natural monopoly of that that operational business has a responsibility to oversee its ownership uh, and its operation. Each of these uh, operators, be it in Portugal or the UK or across Europe, have what they call a license. And in the license, it's very clear that even if it's a privately owned operator or a fully publicly owned operator, they have specific responsibilities. Once these responsibilities are carried out to the uh, satisfaction of the regulator, then a case for fully private or fully state-owned really is academic. I wanted to discuss now the uh, segregation or integration of two functions within the TSO, so the ownership and operation of the assets and the system operation. Recently in the UK, the transmission operator and the system operator became legally separated businesses operating under the national uh, grid group, uh, as you know. Do you view the ownership and control of the system operator in the same way as the network operator, or is there a difference? I believe they're complementary roles. What is very important to understand in the future and in the current uh, scenario where we're trying to deliver huge amounts of uh, integrated renewables, uh, the link between the operators, the responsibilities between the operators to get it right is even more paramount than ever before. And so the idea that you separate out the roles uh, does lead to certain efficiencies and certain degrees of, of clarity with regard to how the uh, business is operated more efficiently rather than being subsumed under one larger company that, that that can be hard to understand. The difficulty now when you have integration question of large renewables on the system is that the operator of the system and the network operator have to work much more closely. If you're bringing, uh, for example, a new wind farm, an offshore wind farm onto the system, of course, you know, to test that wind farm and to ensure that it's got all the controls, the network operator has to ensure it can connect it in and the system operator has to understand it can test and provide services to the system. They need to work very closely together to ensure that all those responsibilities of the new uh, unit on the system does what it has to do. So if you asked me, in some ways, the, the integration question really relies on very good relationships and very good agreements between the operators. It can be done if they are two separate entities or if they're separately business owned, but it can be also very challenging because unless you understand how they should work efficiently together and how they should uh, you know, complement each other on a daily basis, if not uh, future planning and, and years ahead, you could get, make mistakes. You could uh, find, in fact, there are things that could be done better and learning by doing. Okay. Um, and that is okay, but it, it's not okay when you talk about power systems. Learning by doing is we don't get many opportunities to learn, you know, in a sort of a, in, a, in an educational sense. Uh, we, in fact, have to learn the consequences in, in other senses. So in many ways, the, the the way of integrating renewables on the system would really be more you know, prevalent for, for a model that was more integrated itself. Um, but it doesn't mean that they have to be the same business structure. They can just have a regulated business model that can be managed uh, you know, within a jurisdiction quite well. Interesting. So do you think that the added pressure of integrating larger amounts of renewables in the system 
will lead European legislatures to question the unbundling model that we have today. So I'm a, I'm a very analytical person and questioning is just part of what I do. I believe we should question everything, especially when we have huge challenges. So it's healthy to, to question the, the unbundling model. It may not be healthy, though, to change the unbundling model that we have because we don't have time. Okay, so it could be that we want to tweak it or we want to try and understand its weaknesses to try and manage uh, to make it stronger. Um, certainly having all of the operators now within Europe individually focused on delivering their integration targets is very useful. Uh, but making them all work together for the benefit of everyone, uh, for the benefit of borders and all of the various uh, sort of seams issues between countries is really fundamentally important also. So, so the business model or the model of regulation has been to separate them out and make them efficient. But now you also have to make the efficient entities work very well together as, an, as a combined uh, efficient model. As I said, it doesn't mean that they all have to be under one super entity, but they can be working very well in a, in a collaborative sense, in a, in a focused implementation sense. And therefore, the, the role of the regulator or the role of the focused regulator would be quite important in years to come to ensure that we do all work uh, towards that one single drive. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to the question of shareholders. How do you view the arrival of two relatively recent category uh, categories of grid company shareholders, that's pension funds and state companies uh, from outside the EU, namely China. How do these shareholders relate to the energy transition goals uh, that grid operators must enable? So I believe that regardless of whether you're a member of a pension fund or you're part of a Chinese state company, um, you, you have an alignment with regard to energy transition. Uh, each of us, all of us, uh, use electricity every day. And where this electricity comes from, how it's produced, how it's generated is of, of interest to us all. Uh, as I explained, if you become a shareholder, you become a shareholder of a company. And the company has a particular uh, focus and articles that must be, uh, um, must be adhered to. So if those shareholders support that company's objectives. And uh, then, of course, uh, it does not matter one way whether you're a pension fund uh, holder or a Chinese state uh, enterprise. And that, that is really the fundamental uh, objective here, is that the, the delivery of the objectives of the company are maintained. Um, so grid companies have very fundamental objectives to deliver for their consumers, for their citizens. Um, they are natural monopolies, and therefore they should they have a sort of even higher responsibility than a competitive business such as generation or supply, uh, because generation or supply is what they call a natural competition uh, under economics law. Uh, the grid company is is fundamentally uh, a monopoly. And therefore, in there, the monopoly business has a duty under, under its responsibilities to deliver for the citizens. If I want to invest or anyone wants to invest in that, they obviously sign up to those, those objectives. Um, so in the age of delivering very fast change in terms of all those uh, uh, policy objectives, bringing renewables onto the system, decommissioning uh, old plant, you need investment. You need change. You need, um, you know, energy. You know, in, in another sense, uh, to deliver that. So it is. It is important. In terms of whether those uh, new parties or new investors uh, create 
national security or cybersecurity concerns, I would say that those security concerns exist regardless of whether you have investors coming from outside EU jurisdictions or not. Um, the, as everyone knows, uh, you know, that the, the particular threats can come from within a country. And therefore, it doesn't have to be imposed upon you through an investor type profile. So it's really uh, important for the grid companies to take all necessary precautions to secure their company and secure the infrastructure. And therefore, national security matters are being addressed or by, are being considered in terms of more inside threats than outside threats. And this is a very interesting discussion that's happening across the grid at the moment. So to end our interview, I'd like to ask you some rapid fire questions that you can answer with one or two words or take a wild guess. Zero carbon Europe by 2050, myth or reality? Reality, I hope. The future of storage, batteries or power to gas? My guess would be batteries. <laughs> what year will see the last internal combustion engine vehicle sold in Europe? Again, with the hope, 2030, um, with a lot of change in the next 10 years. What will the percentage of power generated by prosumers be in 2050? Hopefully, again, 50%. I'm saying a lot of prayers now. <laughs> <laughs> the main challenge for utilities in the next decade is... To be agile. And our final question... Do you believe that the Paris Agreement goal of keeping the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees or indeed at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will be attained? And if yes, by what date? I believe it will be attained. I believe that fundamentally there's a change happening now and there's a generational shift, you know, across all uh, economies. And the difficulty will be when, when it will achieve that temperature. But I believe that there is enough concern, there's enough focus that at the the level of the next generation uh, of our children coming along, they will want to address this and they will believe that this will be worth, the, the planet will be worth saving. So I will say yes, but the date I, I hope to be sooner than, than hopefully realizable. Thank you, Sonny, very much for your time. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you for tuning into Net Zero. You can catch new episodes, subscribe, and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts.